Chapter Three, Part Two of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Irish Tweed Coat, Part Two. We sat in the study a long while after that, Mr. Shuttleworth, Lady Molly, and I, discussing the plans of the exciting journey, for I too, as you will see, was destined to play my small part in this drama, which had the life or death of an innocent man for its denouement. I don't think I need bore you with an account of our discussion. All I think that will interest you is the plan of campaign we finally decided upon. There seemed to be no doubt that Mr. Shuttleworth had succeeded so far in not arousing the suspicions of the Piattis. Therefore, that night, when they were safely out of the way, Mr. Shuttleworth would once more unearth the coat and watch and chain, and then bury a coat similar in color and texture in the same hole in the ground, this might perhaps serve to put the miscreants off their guard, if by any chance one of them should busy himself again in the garden. After that, Mrs. Tadworth would hide about her the proofs of young Shuttleworth's innocence, and join Lady Molly at our flat at Maida Vale, where she would spend the night preparatory to the two ladies leaving London for abroad the following morning, by the 9 a.m. train from Charing Cross, en route for Vienna, Budapest, and finally Cividale but our scheme was even more comprehensive than that, and herein lay my own little share in it, of which I tell you presently. The same evening at half-past nine, Mrs. Tadworth arrived at the flat with the coat and watch and chain, which were to be placed in the hands of Colonel Grassi, the chief police officer at Cividale. I took a keen look at the lady, you may be sure of that. It was a pretty little face enough, and she herself could not have been more than seven or eight and twenty, but to me the whole appearance and manner of the woman suggested weakness of character, rather than that devotion on which poor Mr. Shuttleworth so implicitly relied. I suppose that it was on that account that I felt unaccountably downhearted and anxious when I bade farewell to my own dear lady, a feeling in which she obviously did not share. Then I began to enact the role which had been assigned to me. I dressed up in Mrs. Tadworth's clothes. We were about the same height, and putting on her hat and closely fitting veil, I set out for Leather Lane. For as many hours as I could possibly contrive to keep up the deception, I was to impersonate Mrs. Tadworth in her own house. As I dare say you have guessed by now, that lady was not in affluent circumstances, and the house in a small by-street off Leather Lane did not boast of a staff of servants. In fact, Mrs. Tadworth did all the domestic work herself, with the help of a charwoman for a couple of hours in the mornings. That charwoman had, in accordance with Lady Molly's plan, been given a week's wages in lieu of notice. I, as Mrs. Tadworth, would be supposed the next day to be confined to my room with a cold, and Emily, our own little maid, a bright girl, who would go through fire and water for Lady Molly or for me, would represent a new charwoman. As soon as anything occurred to arouse my suspicions that our secret had been discovered, I was to wire Lady Molly at the various points which she gave me. Thus provided with an important and comprehensive part, I duly installed myself at Bread Street, Leather Lane. Emily, who had been told just enough of the story, and no more, to make her eager, excited, and satisfied, entered into the spirit of her role as eagerly as I did myself. That first night was quite uneventful. The Piatis came home some time after eleven, and went straight up to their room. Emily, looking as like a bedraggled charwoman as her trim figure would allow, was in the hall the next morning when the two men started off for breakfast. 
She told me afterwards that the younger one looked at her very keenly, and asked her why the other servant had gone. Emily replied with due and proper vagueness, whereupon the Sicilians said no more, and went out together. That was a long and wearisome day, which I spent cooped up in the tiny stuffy parlour, ceaselessly watching the tiny patch of ground at the back, devoured with anxiety, following the travellers in my mind on their way across Europe. Towards midday one of the Piattis came home and presently strolled out into the garden. Evidently the change of servants had aroused his suspicions, for I could see him feeling about the earth with his spade, and looking up now and again towards the window of the parlour, whereat I contrived to show him the form of a pseudo-Mrs. Tadworth moving about the room. Mr. Shuttleworth and I were having supper in that same back parlour, at about nine o'clock on that memorable evening, when we suddenly heard the front door being opened with a latch-key, and then very cautiously shut again. One of the two men had returned at an hour most unusual for their otherwise very regular habits. The way to in which the door had been opened and shut suggested a desire for secrecy and silence. Instinctively I turned off the gas in the parlour, and with a quick gesture pointed to the front room, the door of which stood open, and I whispered hurriedly to Mr. Shuttleworth, "'Speak to him!' Fortunately, the great aim which he had in view had rendered his perceptions very keen. He went into the front room, in which the gas, fortunately, was alight at the time, and opening the door which gave thence onto the passage, he said pleasantly, "'Oh, Mr. Priati, is that you? Can I do anything for you?' "'Ah, yes, thank you,' replied the Sicilian, whose voice I could hear was husky and unsteady. "'If you will be so kind. I, I feel so fainting and queer to-night. The warm weather, I think. Would you, would you be so kind to fetch me a little ammoniac, or star volatile, you call it, I think, from the apothecary? I will go to lie on my bed if you would be so kind.' "'Why, of course I will, Mr. Piatti,' said Mr. Shuttleworth, who somehow got an intuition of what I wanted to do, and literally played into my hands. "'I'll go at once.' He went to get his hat from the rack in the hall, whilst the Sicilian murmured profuse thank yous, and I heard the front door bang to. From where I was I could not see Piatti, but I imagined him standing in the dimly lighted passage, listening to Mr. Shuttleworth's retreating footsteps. Presently I heard him walking along towards the back door, and soon I perceived something moving about in the little bit of ground beyond. He had gone to get his spade. He meant to unearth the coat and watch and chain which, for some reason or another, he must have thought were no longer safe in their original hiding-place. Had the gang of murderers heard that the man who frequently visited their landlady was the father of Cecil Shuttleworth over at Palermo? At that moment I paused neither to speculate nor yet to plan. I ran down to the kitchen, for I no longer wanted to watch Piatti. I knew what he was doing. I didn't want to frighten Emily, and she had been made to understand all along that she might have to leave the house with me again at any time, at a moment's notice. She and I had kept our small handbag ready packed in the kitchen, whence we could reach the area steps quickly and easily. Now I quietly beckoned to her that the time had come. She took the bag and followed me. Just as we shut the area gate behind us, we heard the garden door violently slammed. Piatti had got the coat, and by now was examining the pockets in order to find the watch and chain. Within the next ten seconds he would realize that the coat which he held was not the one which he had buried in the garden, and that the real proofs of his guilt, or his complicity in the guilt of another, had disappeared. 
We did not wait for those ten seconds, but flew down Bread Street, in the direction of Leather Lane, where I knew Mr. Shuttleworth would be on the lookout for me. "'Yes,' I said hurriedly, directly I spied him at the angle of the street. "'It's all up. I am off to Budapest by the early Continental to-morrow morning. I shall catch them at the Hungaria. See Emily safely to the flat.' Obviously there was no time to lose, and before either Mr. Shuttleworth or Emily could make a remark, I had left them standing, and had quickly mixed my insignificant personality with the passers-by. I strolled down Leather Lane quite leisurely, you see. My face was unknown to the Piattis. They had only seen dim outlines of me behind very dirty window-panes. I did not go to the flat. I knew Mr. Shuttleworth would take care of Emily, so that night I slept at the Grand Hotel, Charing Cross, leaving the next morning by the 9 a.m., having booked my berth on the Orient Express as far as Budapest. End of The Irish Tweed Coat, Part 2